Well, good morning once again. Let's uh, go uh, to the throne of grace uh, with our hearts and minds submitted and bowed to our Lord together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to begin here in this preaching time by simply acknowledging that you are the head of your church. You are the head of this local church and every other local church. Uh, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We come under you and under your word, under the authority of it. I pray, Lord, during this time, as we open your word on the subject of church unity, Lord, that you would come by your Holy Spirit and um, chisel through areas of our hearts and minds that are not in submission to you and your purposes. Lord, that you would steer us away from paths of selfish ambition. Uh, Lord, this is something that you've said in your word is certainly not pleasing to you. So I pray that you would do your work here amongst us. If there are tendencies growing anywhere toward disunity uh, in this church, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would come and war against those things. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for your sake. Amen. The Cape Town Commitment is an important document written in 2010 by a global cross-section of evangelical Christians coming from 198 different nations. The Cape Town Commitment lays out shared biblical convictions, and it also calls the Church of Jesus Christ to action. The document was produced by the Lausanne Movement, and the Lausanne Movement describes itself this way as a worldwide movement that mobilizes evangelical leaders to collaborate for world evangelization. This morning, I want to read to you section 2F, subsection 1 of the Cape Town Commitment. The title of this brief subsection is The Unity of the Church. And as I read this statement on the unity of the church, I encourage you to listen especially to how they link the unity of the church with God's wider mission in the world. So here's the statement, quote, A divided church has no message for a divided world. Our failure to live in reconciled unity is a major obstacle to authenticity and effectiveness in mission. And so, A, we lament the dividedness and divisiveness of our churches and organizations. We deeply and urgently long for Christians to cultivate a spirit of grace and to be obedient to Paul's command to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And B, while we recognize that our deepest unity is spiritual, we long for greater recognition of the missional power 
of visible, practical, earthly unity. So we urge Christian sisters and brothers worldwide for the sake of our common witness and mission to resist the temptation to split the body of Christ and to seek the paths of reconciliation and restored unity wherever possible. Close quote. As I mentioned, the clear links in that statement between church unity and missional effectiveness of the church in the world, I think it's a noteworthy link, a very important link for them to make. Again, just to emphasize it again, the link is between church unity and the missional effectiveness of the church in the world. There is a profound link there. In last Sunday's sermon, we heard Paul raise the issue of church unity already in verse 27 of Philippians 1. In that verse, Paul's desire was that the Philippian church would stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. All of those are terms of unity. In this morning's passage, Paul will concentrate even more on the subject of church unity. Friends, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, which was our main imperative in 127, it means... Among other things, it means to work actively and to work consciously to preserve and guard church unity. And that's really what Paul emphasizes now as we move into the first few verses of chapter 2, church unity. Lurking in the background of what he is about to say here was the fact that the Philippian church was already tending toward disunity, toward division, toward fracture. Paul was aware of that unsavory tendency in their ranks, and so he begins to address it here with this explicit call to unity. You're going to hear me say that word unity a lot this morning. But the way he arrives at this call to unity, or the the little journey that he takes to get there is really quite a fascinating journey, and it's very instructive for us. Let's go to Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy. Now, we need to pause there in order to discuss several things that I think will help us with our interpretation. First of all, as has been pointed out by several New Testament uh, scholars, New Testament commentators, what Paul is not doing in verse 1 is wondering about the experience that the Philippians were having. In other words, Paul is not saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Is there, Philippians? Because I really don't know if there is. 
if there is any comfort from love. You must tell me if there is comfort from love because I can't be sure. If there is any participation in the Spirit, is there such participation, Philippians, because I can't be sure. He's not doing that sort of thing here. He's not wondering aloud about the Philippians' experience. Instead, what Paul is doing is this. If, this is what he's saying, he's saying, if, as is obviously the case, there is encouragement in Christ, if, as is no doubt true, there is comfort from love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. Paul is affirming certain realities as being true in the experience of the Philippians. He's not wondering if these experiences had been happening. This is very important for our interpretation here. Again, just so that we're clear, Paul is assuming that all of these things in verse 1 are true in the experience of the Philippians. If there is any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, etc., and there certainly is, then complete my joy. And this leads nicely into our second observation about this verse, which I also think is quite important. Do notice carefully, notice carefully that Paul in this verse is very important, pictures the Christian life in terms of relational experiences. Relational experiences. To be encouraged in Christ is a relational experience, is it not? To receive comfort in love and to give comfort in love are relational experiences. To participate in the Spirit is a relational experience, and so are affection and sympathy. And the importance of this point, I think, is described well by John Kitchen when he says this. Life in Christ is more than an idea, more than a philosophy, more than a worldview or a rationale. He says, we do not misspeak when we talk of our Christian experience. Paul here is talking to believers in Philippi, believers in the church who had been rebirthed by the Spirit of God and who were in a real and vital relationship with the risen Jesus Christ. And he is appealing here to their experience in Christ, their experiences of Christ and of the Spirit of God. For born-again believers in Jesus Christ, our Real life experience is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. We receive these treasures from our God, and we also share with others from the spiritual wealth that we have been granted. This is our experience as Christians. 
Well, one more thing to observe here uh, before we take a, a little bit more of a detailed look at the four items that are here in this verse. The final thing to observe here is that it sure seems as though Paul frames this verse in the Trinity. Or we might say he gives this verse a Trinitarian structure. Notice that in this verse we have explicit mention, don't we? Explicit mention of both Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, and the Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. And as Gordon Fee has argued, and I think he argues persuasively, the Father, who is the first person of the Trinity, is most likely assumed in the phrase, any comfort from love. Now, to make his argument that Philippians 2.1 has a Trinitarian structure, Fee takes us to the very last verse of 2 Corinthians, and he also takes us to the first five verses of Romans 5. In both places, Father, Son, and Spirit are mentioned with terms and concepts that are quite similar to what we have here in Philippians 2.1. So most likely, Paul wants us as readers to be thinking in this verse not only of Christ and the Spirit, who are mentioned explicitly here, but Father also. The Trinity. Now I want us to hang on to that thought for now. Uh, keep it ready in your back pocket because it will become important as we get into verse 2. But as for the four, uh, the specific four treasures that are outlined in this verse, let's just briefly, just briefly consider each of them. The first is encouragement in Christ. We could also legitimately render it from the Greek as comfort in Christ. The believer's experience, are you a believer this morning? The believer's experience is comfort that stems from and proceeds from his or her union with the crucified and risen and soon coming Jesus Christ. And that quality of comfort then proceeds also, doesn't it, from believer to believer, from believer to the world. The second treasure here in the believer's experience is comfort from love. Notice that. Comfort from love. This is about the consoling nature. Do you know this consoling nature of the love of Christ for us? The consoling nature of Christ's love toward us. Romans 5.5 5 speaks of God's love being what? Poured into the heart of the believer, shed abroad in his or her heart. And this love is reciprocated back to God. It comes to God, from God to us, and it's reciprocated from us back to God, and also it's reciprocated outward toward others. The third treasure in this verse that is the experience of the believer is koinonia, or participation in the Spirit. What's this? This is our sharing in the Spirit of God. Amen? Sharing in the third person of the Trinity, experiencing a deep 
and intimate relationship with the Spirit of God, and then out of that divinely given experience flows loving relationships with other believers who share the same Spirit of God. And then fourth and finally in this verse is affection and sympathy. Yes, as believers, we receive the treasure of undeserved, surprising affection and sympathy from God. And inside of us, that divine affection and sympathy produces what Matthew Harmon calls deep impulses of love and concern for one another. Deep impulses of love and concern for one another. Four treasures in this verse. Dennis Johnson says that these four treasures are concrete expressions of the deep affection and mercies that tie God's heart to ours. I love that. Concrete expressions of the deep affection and mercies that tie God's heart to ours. And again, Paul is saying to the Philippians here, these four Philippians are all realities for you. You are believers, they are all realities. They're realities for us who are adopted into the family of God. And since these four things are all true in your experience, since the Trinity has granted, has lavished so much blessing and treasure upon you, you who are the church, then, verse 2, here's what Paul appeals for. Here's what the apostle is urging. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I want you to notice something here. It would have been very easy for Paul to go from verse 1 directly to the phrase, be of the same mind. In other words, it would have been easy for him to say, since these four treasures are your experience, verse 1, then be of the same mind. But what we notice is that in between verse 1 and the phrase, being of the same mind, Paul inserts this other phrase, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Paul has a concern for his joy to be completed, to be filled up by what the Philippians do and how they act. And on the surface, at least, this sounds a little self-serving on the part of the Apostle Paul, does it not? On the surface, he's concerned here about his joy being topped up through the actions of others. Well, friends, to see that this is not self-serving on Paul's part in any way, I want you to consider this as an illustration. The other day, we went to uh, the DDO Aquatic Center uh, to sit in the stands and watch Ezra's swim qualifier. And for me, 
as Ezra's dad, for me to sit there, sit back in the bleachers, watch my youngest son uh, compete in those heats, and to see in him the advancements and the progress in his swim technique that he had made from going to all those uh, swim practices, it made my heart sing, honestly, to sit there and just watch. It was a cause of joy for me. It put a smile in my heart and a smile on my face. Why? Because I love my son. I love Ezra, and it brings me such joy to see him succeed. Well, it's the same sort of idea with Paul in this verse. Complete my joy. When the Apostle Paul watched as the Philippian church advanced in their Christian life, when Paul witnessed spiritual growth in this church, it brought joy to his pastoral heart. And why? Because his heart was bound up with their hearts. He loved this church, and their success and their growth in Jesus Christ meant joy for Paul. Looking at this verse, how would it be that the Philippians would fill up Pastor Paul's joy? They would do that by actively, rigorously, I want to stress that, actively, rigorously preserving church unity. Amen? Actively, rigorously preserving church unity by having success amongst one another in maintaining unity. Paul says here, complete my joy by what? By being of the same mind, okay, no rogues in the church off doing their own thing. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, what would make the heart of Paul sing, what would make him sit back in those bleachers and applaud wildly for the Philippians was the Philippians getting blood earnest about the preservation of church unity. This is a word from God, friends. Preservation of church unity. Paul is already aware of the red flags in the Philippian church that were pointing toward disunity. Hence his urgent appeal here to unity. Friends, unity in the church, I want you to listen, unity in the church is so fabulously important. Not for its own sake, but for the sake of having an effective witness in the world and to the world and making the name of God great. Notice here the phrases that Paul piles up, each of them related to church unity. First is being of the same Mind. Several commentators point out that we shouldn't take this in the intellectual sense only. So this isn't merely about thinking. 
in the same way. Rather, being of the same mind is a broader call for the church to be harmonious also in the, in the realm of the will and of the affections. The will and the affections. Peter O'Brien says that this phrase, being of the same mind, describes the general disposition of harmony which should be the background against which the whole Christian fellowship moves. Hmm. One way we could think of this is with the word mindset. Having the same mindset is about unity in thinking, unity in willing, and unity in affections. Having the same mindset. The second phrase about unity in this verse is having the same love. This is about a reciprocal, listen, a reciprocal constant back and forth love between believers. A continuous, shared, self-sacrificial, unbiased, genuine love within the ranks of the church. And then third, we have the phrase, being in full accord. Now, this is an interesting one. The Greek term here literally means together in soul or fellow-souled. Dennis Johnson suggests soulmates. We usually use that term in terms of romantic relationships, but here we can use it in terms of the church. Soulmates, that's probably not far off here. Paul calls for people in Christ's church to be soulmates with one another. God in this text, friends, is expressing what? He's expressing his desire that redeemed people in his church love each other with such a deep and binding love that where differences of perspective spring up, and they will, it will not pull us apart or divide us. And then fourth here, we have the phrase of one mind, which might literally be rendered as thinking the one thing. Now listen, having looked at all these descriptors of church unity, if Gordon Fee is right when he argues for a Trinitarian structure in verse 1, it makes verse 2 even more powerful. Could it be, friends, could it be that Paul alludes to the Trinity in verse 1? Because in verse 2, he's talking about church unity. Is Paul grounding his appeal to church unity in verse 2 in the Trinity, which he alludes to in verse 1? Listen. The Trinity is one God existing in three persons. One God existing in three perfectly harmonious persons. There is a most indestructible eternal unity in the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity serves the others. Amen? 
Each person of the Trinity pours out love eternally to the other two persons of the Trinity. There is what Stephen Fowle has called an endless self-donation of love. An endless self-donation of love within the Trinity. There is an eternally perfect unity and yet, and I want you to listen, and yet, there is diversity in the Trinity. Father is not Son. Son is not Father. Spirit is not Son, etc. So that the Trinity is the ultimate, highest, most glorious model of unity in diversity. And when Jesus prays for church unity in John 17, 21, it's very interesting. He couches his prayer for unity in terms of the Trinity. Greg Allison has put the whole matter very well when he says this. I want you to listen to this. I'll read it for you a couple times. He says, the eternal Trinitarian reality of unity in diversity is the source and template. The source and template of ecclesial unity, or we could say church unity. One more time, because I know that's a lot. He says, the eternal Trinitarian reality of unity in diversity is the source and template of ecclesial unity or church unity. Now, friends, is this, is this not breathtaking? Can you start to see how high and how noble is the nature and the calling of the church of Jesus Christ? So many in the church today have bought into the mistaken perspective that the church exists to be a vendor of religious goods and services. To be a place that is to cater to our whims and feed our needs and comply with our tastes. Now, if that is your consumeristic perspective of the church and what the church exists for, then I dare say you won't care much about the issue of church unity one way or another because you'll simply leave when the church fails to give you what you think you need. Or you'll simply leave when the going gets tough. But friend, if you renew your mind with the New Testament open and the Spirit of God working on your mind and heart, if you renew your mind so that now you have the New Testament perspective of the church, that the church, namely, is a rebirthed, redeemed people sent on God's mission to God's world. See how different those perspectives are. That the church is a redeemed, rebirthed people sent by God on his mission to his world, then your level of care and concern to maintain church unity for the sake of God's mission is going to come up to a whole new level. 
The question is, what is your view of the church? Is it driven more by culture, traditions you've imbibed, or is it actually based on and fed from the New Testament? The church takes the Trinity, whom we worship, as our source and our template for church unity. The church recognizes the sheer importance of church unity for God's mission to the world. We recognize that we as the church do not generate from scratch our unity. We do not create our unity. Rather, it is the Spirit of God who creates unity and who gives unity. Our role is to diligently and proactively preserve that spirit-given unity, to maintain unity, to guard unity. And we realize that this guarding, maintaining, and preserving of church unity takes constant work, doesn't it? It takes zealous attention because, why? Because the powers are constantly at work trying to tear unity apart. They realize what's at stake. And so they're trying to tear unity apart at every level, and our own sinful, selfish desires so often get in the way of it as well. Well, what's a major step forward in strengthening unity? A major step forward in strengthening our unity will involve continuing, serious, sobering exposure to God's authoritative word the Bible. As Protestants, we come under the Bible. Increasing clarity amongst us, and we all need it, increasing clarity amongst us concerning doctrine, and increasing clarity amongst us about how to read the Bible, and how to interpret the Bible, and increasing clarity in our midst about the essentials of our faith. What is essential and non-negotiable, and what's not? When we get a deeper grasp on all of these things, it will not divide the church, as many people fear. Rather, having a deeper grasp on these things is going to go a long way in strengthening our unity with one another. Well, we need to go forward in our text to our final verses this morning, which are verses 3 and 4. So earlier we mentioned that even as Paul wrote this letter, he already knew that the Philippian church was struggling with issues of disunity. And verse 3 suggests pretty strongly that self-interest, self-centeredness, were live viruses in the church. And self-interest and self-centeredness are always going to be great obstacles to church unity. Paul says to the Philippians, notice what he says, how many things are they to do from selfish ambition? What does the text say? Do a grand total of nothing. Look at your whole life, look at your motives, your modus operandi, everything that you do, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I ask you this question, how is that for a cruise missile sent directly at the old Adam who struggles to stay alive in each and every one of us? He's talking to you, and he's talking to me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The Greek word that we translate into English as selfish ambition is the same word, note this, the same word that Paul had used at 117 to describe those who preached Christ with poor motives. They were proclaiming Christ with selfish ambition. But now here at 2.3, Paul applies the same characteristic to the Philippians themselves. Ouch. Selfish ambition. Gordon Fee says this, Selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness, where self-interest and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others primarily dictate values and behavior. Yes. What Paul describes here is the person who has himself or herself as the preeminent concern in the church. This is the person who looks at every situation in terms of how it may benefit himself or herself. And the apostle urges the Philippians simply to cancel that. Cancel such a perspective in the church. Get rid of it. Banish it. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Paul realizes what's at stake for God's mission to the world in church unity. And alongside of that, Paul also wants the Philippians to war against, it's a war, friends, to exterminate conceit from their ranks. The Greek word here is interesting again. The King James Version translates it more literally from the Greek. King James Version translates it with a word that was current in the late 15th century, the word vainglory. It's not a word we use anymore, but it's a more accurate translation of the Greek. The word describes the person who has an inflated opinion of himself or herself. This is the person who lacks self-awareness, who thinks that he or she has glory that is not actually there or that is in fact an empty glory. And this sort of fleshly attitude along with selfish ambition, these things, friends, I want you to listen carefully, they work like a corrosive acid in the church. Are you with me? They work like a corrosive acid in the church, eating away, eroding things, destroying unity, and thereby they make our witness to the world look pathetic. But what does Paul say here? He says that the sure path toward being of the same mind in the church, the sure path toward unity in the church is this. Notice what he says. In humility. Oh, note that word. 
in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He's talking to me. And he's talking to you. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The word humility has the sense of having a lowly mindset. Friend, I want to ask you, do you have a lowly mindset? If we answer too fast, oh, (laughs) Lord have mercy. I want us to be sober and ask ourselves that question. Do, do I have a lowly mindset? Do, do I have a sense, truly, that I am merely a sin-tainted, inadequate, limited creature who lives under the eternal, holy, creator, God. The humble person, the person who has been turned inside out by the Spirit of God, this is a person who fears God, first and foremost, and who is ready to look outward from himself or from herself and care for others, embrace others, Respect others, serve others, and stop obsessing over self-preservation and self-exaltation. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. What a vision for the church, amen? What a powerful witness to the world. And hadn't Paul himself displayed such humility in his life when he considered that it would be better to stay alive for the Philippians' sake than to depart and be with Christ. Hadn't Paul displayed humility also in the fact that his own interests took a distant backseat to the spread of the fame of Jesus Christ there in that prison? Paul was a living example of humility to the Philippians, but very soon, if we know the the letter, very soon Paul is going to present the Philippians with the supreme, ultimate example of humility, which of course is who? Jesus Christ. Stay tuned for the sermon that, that Charles, Lord willing, will preach next Sunday. A little spiritual commercial there. Let's go to our final verse now, to verse four, very quickly. Paul continues... Let each of you look not only to his own interests. So I pray that the Spirit of God would get this under our skin and into our hearts and into our minds. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, what, what is this describing? This verse is describing attentiveness to the needs of your neighbor. And it's very much in keeping with what Paul says elsewhere in his letters. For example, 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Or Romans 15.2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You know, a surefire way to destroy church unity 
is to have each individual center only on himself, only on herself, only the interests and the wants and the whims of the self. It's a surefire way to destroy church unity. Now, as this verse affirms, notice this carefully, you don't totally neglect your own interests, right? If we read the verse carefully, this isn't about total and utter self-forgetfulness. However, your eye must be trained, your spiritual eye must be trained in the church to be attentive to the needs of others, and you must be ready to serve those needs, The Spirit's work in a believer's life is to take the believer from his default position in Adam, which is to be selfish in thought, motive, word, and action, to a new, beautiful place of selflessness. Selflessness that is attentive to, cares genuinely for the interests and the needs of others without craving any fanfare without craving any acknowledgement for it. Well, friends, this morning we've traversed through a New Testament passage that is lofty in its vision for the church. Paul began with a fourfold description of treasures that belong to the church through the Trinity. These treasures are experienced by us, courtesy of the Trinity. And on the basis of those experienced treasures, Paul calls the church to unity for the sake of the mission of God. God who gives the treasures to us in the first place. Paul calls the church to reorient its life together, to banish selfish ambition and conceit from our ranks, to sweep those things clean out of the church, to become a people of the same mind and of the same love in full accord and of one mind for the sake of God's mission in God's world. And so we close now by doing what we did at the start today. I want you to stand And I want to reread the statement now from the Cape Town Commitment, hoping that it will now be even more powerful to us and more meaningful than it was a half an hour ago, and hoping further that we will take action where necessary on the the issue of church unity, that we wouldn't just shake our heads in agreement with the sermon or in agreement with Paul and then forget about it as we have lunch but rather that we would actively seek unity where there is division. Here's the statement again. A divided church has no message for a divided world. Our failure to live in reconciled unity is a major obstacle to authenticity and effectiveness in mission. And so, A, we lament the dividedness and divisiveness of our churches and organizations. We deeply and urgently long for Christians to cultivate a spirit of grace and to be obedient to Paul's command to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And B, while we recognize that our deepest unity is spiritual, 
We long for greater recognition of the missional power of visible, practical, earthly unity. So we urge Christian sisters and brothers worldwide, for the sake of our common witness and mission, to resist the temptation to split the body of Christ and to seek the paths of reconciliation and restored unity wherever possible. Amen. You may be seated, and we'll take a time of silent meditation on the Word of God, and then at the appropriate time, I'll close us in prayer. So let's take a silent time now and bring our hearts to God. Father in heaven, our prayer is that you would continue to bring us along and by your Holy Spirit make us people who treasure unity because this reflects the heart of the Trinity. Help us to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Help us each as individuals, no matter who we are, to resist selfish ambition and conceit and to work proactively and creatively for unity, to preserve unity and to maintain it. We thank you, Spirit, for giving it to the church, and we pray that we would be obedient to you and obedient to this word in doing whatever is necessary to preserve unity. In Jesus' name, amen.